Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, your host, and this is episode two of season three. So last episode, we kind of introduced some of, or at least one of, the concepts behind the way the early church viewed the world, kind of their worldview about the kingdom of God and what all that meant. Then now in this episode, we're still looking at the ideologies of the early church to kind of understand where they were coming from so that we can use them as a good example, looking back at that kind of parallel aspect of that historical movement that occurred compared to things that are going on in today's time. So uh, with that, the more philosophical bent for today will be more in line with political philosophy and how you balance idealism with uh, reality and realism. So the idea here is that there's always an inherent friction between idealism and realism. These always will exist in our current world the way that it is. Now, for the early Christians, they believed that a Christian's goal was to live a perfect, sinless life. They also taught that in reality, every Christian and every human being, every person will fail, they'll stumble, they'll sin, they'll do things that are not in line with those ideals. Now, the same is true, again, of everybody else. Everybody falls short of living up to the ideals of humanity, of society, of market structures, of anything. We cannot live up to these ideals. That is just not reality. And so the question is, what do you do about that? Well, according to the early church, they believed that you should always try to live up to the ideal, even though you cannot reach it. So it's not that you try to be perfect so that you can be better than everybody else and you judge everybody else according to how they compare to you and one day you will be there. You'll at least be super close to there and that's what you strive for. That is not the idea coming out of the early church and those people. The way that they viewed things were that they were sinners just like everybody else and they are so far from being perfect and always will be that there's basically no hope from them apart from having faith that God will make a way for them to become right with him. And we talked a little bit about that in the previous episode as well. And so uh, that's what's going on here. So even though they know that they will never be anywhere close to perfect, they still have perfection as the ideal for their life that they do strive for. That ideal is always what they are striving for even though they know realistically they'll fail over and over, and they do fail over and over. That still is the ultimate goal, is that ideal. Now, this is very important when we start applying this worldview to the political realm, and it will really help us better understand how the early church acted within their culture and within their society and under the government of Rome, and uh, that should be pretty obvious that there are a lot of parallels to things that are going on today with us. So looking back to the scriptures, which is what the early church was built on, they didn't have what we would consider the New Testament, or at least not in its entirety. There were those letters that were being passed around within that first generation of the church. They did exist. They were common to an extent. They were believed to be worthy of reading and teaching from and using, but they didn't necessarily have a canon the way that we think of it as the whole Bible. But they did have the scriptures. That was pretty solid. And the scriptures would be what we would refer to as the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there is one specific example that I like to use because it just makes it so clear where the Israelites were a nation. God gave them a set of rules, a governance system to uh, run their society by. And if you are not extremely familiar with that, or at least this perspective of that, I did an episode, one of the first, I don't know what it is, somewhere in the first dozen episodes or so, on that. It is uh, Governance Over Government, I think was the title of that. But it's all about that 
idea of having a society that does have solid governance and does have rules and does lay that out, but there is no formal government. There is no king. There is no ruler. There is no military. None of these things exist, at least in any way like we would think of them today. And so that's the milieu that we are working with here in the Old Testament with the early nation of Israel. And then at some point, the people decided that they wanted to be like everybody else. Everybody else had a king and everybody else could go to war under the leadership of their king and be victorious and have this pride in their leaders and all this stuff. And uh, for whatever reason, that just sounded really good to them. And so they went to Samuel, who was uh, one of the leaders, a prophet of their time, and told him that we want a king. Will you go talk to God and get him to give us a king? Well, uh, Samuel did mention this to God, and God specifically said that this was a rejection of himself, that they are rejecting me, but go ahead and give them a king anyway. But make sure that you warn them that this king will you know, do all these things, take taxes from you, take your sons to die in war, take your daughters, take your goods that you produce, you know, all these things. And so the whole point here, though, is that the people wanted to pick a human being to rule over them and create a formal government. And this is specifically described by God as a rejection of himself. So going back to the early church and how they would have viewed the king or the emperor or the political realm as a whole, that was not something that was biblical. And so if they're going back to the scriptures and working off of that theology— then they would not have viewed an emperor or a king or a government in a very positive light. The ideal, going back to that concept, would be this governance over government perspective that was set up under Mosaic Law or something similar to that, where you do have an organized society. You do have some hierarchies in different places, but you do not have human beings ruling over other human beings. You have leaders, you do have systems, you have organization, and with all of this, you end up with governance for the society, but it is very different than having a ruler and a ruling party and a ruling group that is not something that is part of this biblical ideal. So when we think about this idea of idealism versus reality, I said earlier that the view of the early church was that you always seek the ideal. You always seek to be perfect, even though you know that you will never be perfect. So it should be pretty obvious that when you mesh those two ideas together of always seeking the ideal with the ideal being no government and no humans ruling over other humans, then the goal, at least by the early church's perspective, by the biblical perspective, would be to not have a government and a king and an emperor to not have this be the societal structure that you organize yourselves around. So that is the ideal. That is what you seek for. That is what you strive for. And that is the goal. However, the reality is that they were living under the Roman Empire, one of the strongest empires to ever exist, with a very strong sense of hierarchy. Definitely had a ruler that was human ruling over everybody else. Uh, rulers sometimes in the Roman Empire claimed to not necessarily be human to have some divinity within them, but in general, these are humans ruling over other humans in a set government with a set hierarchy, and that is not the Christian ideal. And so that gets us into this idea of having a group, the early church, that viewed things very differently than the culture around them. And so how do they deal with that? Well, overall, this is kind of the whole point of this season of the podcast. So this is a question and an issue that will be explored, and we will dive into it throughout the whole season. But with this episode specifically, I want to focus in on one specific aspect of this, and that would be looking at political theory, political philosophy, and how that applies given everything that I just said. So the idea is that 
humans want leadership and humans need leadership. In order to have organization, leadership is a role that is very helpful. It's very efficient. It's very effective. And it achieves the goal. So the idea is that you need purpose, you need guidance, you need motivation. And there are many different ways of going about that. That is the whole idea of government is that you have leadership, you have goals, you have guidance, you have motivation, you have this sense of justice, and all of these things are wrapped up in this idea of having a government, having a state, having an empire, these types of things, city-states, corrupted religions, uh, tribal units. There are so many different ways of doing this. And one final way that I'm going to separate from all the others would be markets having free and open markets. So history does show that in reality, these methods and structures do not conform to or resemble biblical principles, regardless of what example you look at throughout history of a government, of a state, of some kind of organized society. They do not live up to the voluntary nature and this aspect of having leadership and governance without having organized hierarchy and government and rulers. But there is one that fits much better and doesn't necessarily um, contradict all of these ideas. So this would be uh, the market system. This would be something that could be acceptable under a biblical ideal while still maintaining a realistic perspective on the world that achieves both things, or at least has the potential to achieve most things. And that is actually a very important part. So markets in general have a tainted reputation historically, but this is largely due to the combination of markets and states. When you have states coming into play, you have regulations, you have laws, that is not a free and open market. So in reality, when you combine the market and the state, you end up with crony capitalism, corporatism, fascism, whatever ism you want to call that, that is what you end up with. And that distorts and corrupts the advantages that are purely market-based and that a society would have if it was organized under a market system. In reality, any time that you have centralized and forced planning or action in a society, it will always create distortion, both seen and unseen. You can go back to Bastiat for some of those principles there. But this is just inherent in dealing with this. And I guess if I have to mention a last thing to kind of put off the idea of the state and the government and a king, all of these things... Uh, actually, I don't even think I need to. I think I've made that pretty clear that if we are looking at the ideals of the early Christians, those just can't work. However, in a purely free market, you end up with something that could potentially work. So when pure markets are the structure and the guiding hand of society, the greatest incentives are toward biblical principles. So they actually do line up. So even if as realists, we accept that the majority of the secular world is motivated by their own selfish desires and not a drive to serve, then the only viable way to be successful and satisfy these desires in the long run in this free and open market-based system is through cooperation, which cooperation even if it has a negative motive behind it of selfishness or greed, still, if that drives people towards a system of cooperation like free and open markets should, then that would actually still line up with the biblical principles. So even though it's a secular system, it doesn't necessarily contradict the biblical principles of the early church. So without a state companies wouldn't have access to government money. They wouldn't have access to monopoly privileges. They couldn't lobby or bribe politicians for favorable regulations or to promote their business while stifling their competition. They couldn't do any of these things. There would be no nation versus nation warfare to profit from because there would be no nations the way we think of them today, no states. 
There would be no monopoly on money, and that would remove a lot of the advantages held by the banking sector and those closely affiliated with it. Companies and individuals would simply be focused on profits without the ability to use force or coercion to attain these profits. And so therefore, the main way to attain these profits would be through satisfying demand in the market and cooperation. It's not force and coercion. It is a cooperation and service. It is meeting a need in the market. That is how you make money in a totally market-based system. That is how you achieve success. To highlight a few of the main descriptive aspects of market-based systems, I'll kind of go over a few of these that do apply and give an example biblically that should sound very familiar. So markets are very different, obviously, from governments when it comes to incentives and governance methods. They both have incentives, they both have governance methods, but these are totally different things. Markets are nonviolent and non-coercive. That would be the main thing. They incentivize satisfying demand instead of going through force, coercion, politics, and that sort of thing. So historically, markets are very efficient and effective at promoting prosperity, innovation, basically meeting the wants and needs of a population. They are very good at doing this. And even a lot of the corrupted markets that are uh, crony capitalism kind of a thing where you have this mixture of the state and the market, even they have done a great job at promoting prosperity and innovation and things like this. The idea of a pure market is that it uses a meritocracy-based structure in order to decide who is on top of any given market or sector. So it's based on merit. It, it is who does the best job at satisfying the wants and the needs in the market. That is the person that will make the most money in the market-based system. That is the person that will succeed. And those are the people that then become the leaders of that sector of the market. So it is a meritocracy. So if someone does a very good job at satisfying demand and innovating and gaining public support, then they will make more profits, giving them more capital to invest, growing their business even further. So they have proven to be better at investing and using capital than their competition. And therefore, on these merits, they will be in a higher position with more power and influence in the market than their competitors. So someone who does a poor job at satisfying the desires and needs of the market will lose capital. They will be doing the opposite of the former things. So at, at the very least, they will earn less capital and will therefore have less influence in the market due to their weaker performance. So again, this idea of a meritocracy. Now, in this system, the best rise to the top and the rest end up at a position relatively well-suited to their merits, whether that be just under the top or all the way at the bottom, it is according to their merits. And there is biblical precedent for this concept of economic inequality based on the fairness of merits. I'm going to read a parable that does come out of the Bible first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through verse 30. For it will be like a man about to leave home for a while who entrusted his possessions to his servant. To one he gave five talents, equal to a hundred years' wages. To another, two talents. To another, one talent. To each according to his ability. Then he left. The one who had received five talents immediately went out, invested it, and earned another five. Similarly, the one given two earned another two. But the one given one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the other five, and said, Sir, you gave me five talents. Here, I have made five more. His master said to him, Excellent. You are a good and trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with a small amount, so I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come and join in your master's happiness. Also, the one who had received two came forward and said, Sir, you gave me two talents. Here, I have made two more. His master said to him, Excellent. You are a good and trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with a small amount, so I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come and join in your master's happiness." 
Now, the one who had received one talent came forward and said, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest where you didn't plant. You gather where you didn't sow seed. I was afraid, so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what belongs to you. You wicked, lazy servant, said his master. So you knew, did you, that I harvest where I didn't plant, and that I gather where I didn't sow seed. Then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would at least have gotten back interest with my capital. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For everyone who has something will be given more, so that he will have more than enough. But from anyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. As for this worthless servant, throw him into the dark where people will wail and grind their teeth. And that's the end of the parable. This was being told by Yeshua, and he is making this point here. Now, some of this probably doesn't sound very politically correct or uh, what you would expect from Jesus teaching Yeshua, uh, but there is a lot of parallels that you have probably noticed here with what I just got done talking about, about the, the meritocracy of a market-based system. The whole idea of this parable is that when these servants are given money, the master expects them to do good with it, to invest it, to use that capital to make more. And that is the idea here. But there was one who did not do that. And he claims that his master would harvest where he didn't sow. He basically was reaping profits that he didn't deserve. Now, that is something that you probably hear a lot in today's media and in the whole woke culture movement, where they talk about how under capitalism, you have these people at the top that are making a bunch of money off the little guy, and they don't deserve it, and this type of thing. Now, that can be true. I am definitely not going to argue that as a whole, but there is a case to be made for somebody who does very well at investing capital. And uh, for this example, I could frame it this way. There is a person that has a lot of money and he is very good at finding people that can invest well and that can grow money and that can build businesses. So what this rich person does is he takes his money and he gives it to some of these people that he knows will do a good job. And he's very good at figuring out who is going to do good with a lot of capital, who will be very successful. And then when that person is successful, the rich person, the investor, ends up making a bunch of money. Now, some would say that person doesn't deserve that money because he's not the one that went out, started a business, and made a bunch of money. No, but he does have this skill of knowing who is good about these things. And with that, he is able to direct capital in the place that it should be. And he is rewarded for that, which encourages him and gives him more capital to then continue doing so. So that you end up with a market that is very successful with a lot of people at the top that are doing very well, who have been chosen by this rich man at the top, the capitalist. And so in a purely market-based system, this works very well. It's like the master who gave money to three of his servants and the ones who did really well and made a return on the money he loaned them. Those people he entrusted with even more because they did a good job. So obviously he's going to do that and do it to an even greater extent next time. Whereas the person who didn't earn a single thing didn't even gain interest on it, so he wouldn't even kept up with inflation, that person does not need to be given a lot of capital to try to invest in something and grow a business. He is obviously not very good at that. So that would be wasted capital if you gave that money to that person who wasn't very good at it. That's not what you want to do if you want a successful market that thrives and that uses capital efficiently and effectively. Now, obviously, this is not economic equality. This is total inequality. You have somebody with a lot less than the other people. But it is meritocracy where the person has a lot less because 
they don't deserve it and they shouldn't have it. Now, I will specify here that that doesn't mean that that person is poor and starving to death and doesn't have a house. No, that is talking about investment capital. You have somebody with money that is giving that out to people to then grow businesses, investments, these types of things. Um, that is a totally different context than talking about whether someone can meet their basic needs. That's totally different and not a part of this parable and what I'm talking about here. So this should give you a good idea of some biblical examples of these principles, these ideals that even the early church, the early Christians were basing their lives off of, their teachings off of. This came straight from Yeshua. And at the time of the early church, you still had his disciples out there building churches and teaching and writing letters, all of these things. So there were people that learned directly from him and continuing to teach these same principles. So you can see how it would make a lot of sense that a market-based structure would be something that could be in line with these things. So when we continue to think about a system like this, you have no centralized government or similar role at all in this purely market-based society. And with this, everything is decentralized with very little chance of anyone being able to establish a long-term monopoly or complete control over a population as a whole, like a nation state does. That would not really be very possible. You have people that are very successful in a specific niche within the market, and there is a chance that they might control that one niche because they do it so well. That could happen. But... Even if that does happen, the reason it happened was because they were so good at it, then that is a role that they should have based on their merit. And they will create a market with that little niche market that they are in. Let's say it's making widgets. That market of widgets, the widget market, is going to be much better under the monopoly of that one person than it would be under many different people, many different companies. So it might be one person with many different companies. It might be one company. Who knows how that's structured? But if there is one person or one group that has proven to be very good at that niche in the market, then theoretically, they could gain a monopoly or something close to it, but it would be on one tiny niche within the market. It is very unlikely that one person or one group is going to be the best, have the most merit with all of these different niches all throughout a decentralized market-based system that is extremely unlikely. The other aspect of this is that it ensures that even those who aren't at the top will still be better off than they would have been under a state system because everybody is more prosperous. The successful entrepreneurs will be the ones with the most capital, the most investments, and so the system as a whole should be very effective and efficient which is much more than you could say about today's current systems with the current market distortions. Another aspect of a totally market-based system is that this is the only system that will allow for equitable democracy. So the idea here is that everyone gets to vote in a market system through voluntary transactions. So everybody has an influence in how this structure continues forward. These transactions that they participate in, their votes, so to say, and the expressions of preference give signals to the market through entrepreneurs, data, prices, supply and demand, other things like this. And so the individuals in the market will take this information and make decisions with their capital and investments based on the market signals and their own expertise. And so in this way, even the least influential minority can often attain what they desire or at least something close to it. The market doesn't supply just one flavor of potato chip. There are hundreds of flavors of potato chips. So even though 
the market as a whole believes that, let's say, salt and vinegar are the best chips out there, period, and 80% of the market wants salt and vinegar chips. Well, the market is not just going to produce salt and vinegar chips, even though it's a vast majority of people that want them. The market will also provide for all of these other flavors, all of these other preferences, or at least the majority of the other flavors and preferences. And even in the corrupted system we live in today, you can see when you go to the store how true this actually is. Now, if there was a centralized system that used purely democratic voting and some kind of mechanism like that to determine what types of potato chips to make, then the situation would be very different. The majority would get the flavors that they want, and the minority would basically have no other options. Whereas in a purely market-based system, the minority with more niche desires are often more expensive and less available, so I'll grant that. But that's due largely to the fair and unavoidable economic repercussions of the smaller demand. So there are less people that want them, there's less money going after it, and so in order for it to be a viable business, because people with merit are the ones running the businesses and they won't do something that's not viable. So in order to do that, they do charge higher prices. And if people are willing to pay those higher prices and the businesses continue to survive, then those flavors will still be available. And obviously there's market demand for them. So you have these people voting on these various things and it's not just a majority rule system. Basically, everyone can get what they want, or at least somewhere close to it. We definitely don't see anything like this in a state-based system with a government. No matter how perfect of a government someone might think they live under, it does not provide for the minority in the same way and just cannot do so. So the proposed system that I'm talking about, a purely market-based system of a society of governance instead of the state. This proposed system is anarchic in the sense of the true meaning of anarchy. There's no ruler. There's no archy. So since God is the only one fit to rule according to what the early church would have believed, then no man should perform this function over other men outside of individual voluntary action and maybe the relationship of parents to children before the children are mature enough to manage their own will and actions. If society functions well under a system of management and leadership, and I think we can all agree that that is a good thing to have management and leadership, organization, these things are not bad in and of themselves. Well, markets can provide that management without contradicting the ideals. But a state system, a government, a king, a ruler cannot do the same. They might be able to fit this desire of having management and leadership, but they will never be able to meet that ideal of not having humans ruling over other humans. That You can't do that because that's just the opposite. And so you can't have those two things. They're mutually exclusive. Whereas with a market system, they are not. Now, there are plenty of people that would have some objections saying that there will be abuses of the system, and I guarantee you there would be abuses of the system. But although we know many will abuse the system, as they have abused all systems that have ever existed, the system itself does not contradict the principles. Another objection, and this would be probably my personal objection, and also an objection I have in the blockchain space, would be that market incentives don't govern everyone with the same effectiveness, or sometimes with effectiveness at all. So the point is that if someone is focused on power or revenge or some kind of similar drive like that, they may give up economic and social incentives in exchange for accomplishing these goals at all costs. So some may operate under the worst aspects of the will to live, the will to make, the will to control, the will to take, the will to know, but such action is not promoted by the system per se. So, in fact, this system is designed to curb the effects of these corrupt motivations by minimizing their harmful effects on others and incentivizing all individuals to meet the wants and needs of a society, even if only to satisfy their own base desires. 
if you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you should be catching these allusions to William H. Smith, the idea of the will to make, take, control, know all of these things. And then my assertion of the will to serve is another aspect of that. But if you want more on that, you can go back to previous episodes or hang around for a long time, and I'll probably get to it again at some point. But the point here is that we as humans have all of these desires. And the ideal from a Christian perspective or a biblical perspective, so to say, would be that we filter these desires through an overall desire, the will to serve. That should be the number one desire, the will to serve, and that should govern all of these other desires. Whereas the natural tendency is to seek after the will to take or the will to create or the will to control all of these things. And those end up being desires and drives that drive people in a different direction than a service direction. However, in a market-based system, people are incentivized even if their desires and their drives are, say, to control, they're incentivized to control in a way that is a more effective meeting of the needs in the market. So they might be very control-oriented, but their incentive is to maybe create a business that is highly organized, that is highly controlled with all of the, the different variables under control, and therefore, they're going to meet demand in the market very well and be very successful. So that drive of the will to control, the will to master, it is filtered through this drive of serving, of service, to serve, to serve the market. And again, the whole point here is that even if they are doing it for their own selfish desires, they are still incentivized to serve. And that does line up with this biblical ideal of filtering all of our human drives through this will to serve. That is what the market mechanism does. Now, again, there is that objection, though, that not everybody is going to be incentivized, and this will to serve is not going to overlay on top of people's desires and drives universally. So there will always be these issues of, hey, people don't meet up with ideals. That is reality. And those people might end up with a lot of influence. You might have someone that through their own merit has risen to the top and has a lot of influence, a lot of capital, a lot of control in different ways, and then they become jaded, and then they try to seek out for revenge, so to say, and they're willing to throw away everything they have to get their revenge. Now, someone in that position is not really going to be held back by these market incentives. They will probably use the markets in order to achieve their revenge, and yes, these things would happen. The key, for me at least, is that under our current method of putting a small group of elites in charge of large portions of the population, that has the opposite effect and incentivizes corruption and predation and selfish domination, whereas a pure market society as a whole is incentivized to maintain order and stability and security and would act in order to do so through their own actions and through funding groups and businesses who would fulfill roles similar to police, courts, investigation, protection and defense, all of these other things that people think we need a state for. People think we need this small group of elites in charge of a population in order to provide for these needs of defense, protection, investigation, courts, all of these things. Well, we don't. Markets could also fill those roles just fine. One could easily operate completely according to the ideals of the early church, this whole idea of trying to live idealistically, having this ideal and always striving for that. Christians, the early church, can operate under those ideals and seek those ideals under this system without having to manage the contradictions between societal rules and God's laws. They could do both. They could live according to their Christian principles and not have any negative run-ins with this market-based system. They can work together. They're not mutually exclusive. 
No other political or governmental system provides those attributes. Under any state system, under any government system, there is always going to be a contradiction somewhere because living according to the ideal as a society, according to the biblical principles, is necessarily mutually exclusive with having a human ruler running a government and a state. You can't have both of those things. There will be contradictions. So the reality is that the kingdom of God does not rule over all of the earth. That would be the ideal for the early church and for the Christian world, is that the kingdom of God, this whole concept that I went into detail on in the previous episode, the idea is that this kingdom would rule over everything according to what might be the next episode, the natural order. And so... This is the ideal, but it does not exist in reality. That is not where we are. So, so long as we are not there, we must choose a system of either human rulers or market forces for the organization of secular society. Those are our two options. You either have people in charge or markets in charge. You have governments in charge or you have a market-based system in charge. One of the two, so far as I know at least, there is not a third option here. It is either people or markets. Now, you could try to combine the two under some blockchain project where you have some sort of distributed democracy, like a liquid democracy, and you end up with an entity that you could say is similar to a government, but would operate very differently. Theoretically, that could exist, and that would be different than the market or the human rulers. But that also is not a realistic option right now. If you want a name for this system and you are not familiar for some reason, maybe you're new to the podcast and new to this world as a whole, this would be anarcho-capitalism or something similar to that. And this is an idea that has been very fleshed out by very many people. You could go to someone like Murray Rothbard or Mises or Bob Murphy many people. You could also go back to one of the episodes in season one of this podcast, and I did a whole episode on anarcho-capitalism, how that would work in reality. Then I followed that up with a whole episode on objections to anarcho-capitalism and all of these questions of, well, how would this be handled? Well, what about this? Well, wouldn't this go wrong? And all of these things. And as a whole, so you get the context, this was in a series basically against government systems. I had a moral argument against government systems. I had a practical argument against government systems and states. And then I had an option for what I said would be a voluntary government that I actually see could theoretically exist. And that maybe that is a third way. You have you have states, you have governments, you have markets, and maybe you have some sort of voluntary government in some way, but that basically is a market-based system when you really get down to it. But that's what we're dealing with here. So if you want to know more about that aspect, go back and listen to those episodes or seek that out from other people. Again, it is something that has been delved into many times by many people very well. But that is where I am going to leave off on this aspect, and we'll get into another very interesting subject starting in the next episode. So just as a very brief review here, the idea is that a government, a state-based system, will always be contradictory to biblical principles and to the Christian worldview, at least the Christian worldview of the early church, of that first generation uh, post-Yeshua and according to his teachings. So if that is what we're looking at, and that is what I'm looking at for this podcast, for our historical parallel here, then that's not an option. However, like I brought up at first, the whole point of Christianity and this idea of always improving and seeking is that you always strive for the ideal. And if we say that not only is a government not ideal, but it just doesn't work at all in combination with the ideal principles, then you have to have something else. And the only something else that fits, and that actually seems like it would work much, much better, 
is markets. So markets would be a way, but markets are not the ideal and that is key. So for the early church, for the Christians, the ideal is not to have a market-based society. The ideal is the kingdom of God. They are similar. They are focused on the will to serve. They are totally voluntary. They promote and incentivize these positive principles within humanity. So they are similar, but they are not the same thing. That is not what the Christians are trying to achieve. They're not trying to achieve anarcho-capitalism. That's not the goal. The goal is the kingdom of God, and that's a very different thing. So keep that in mind, even though anarcho-capitalism would be something that would be uh, in line and would not be contradictory, that is not the ideal. And as we move on, we'll get into more about how the reality of not even having a market-based system really affects these principles and how you try to live those out, how you still strive for the ideal of the kingdom of God and the principles that that operates under. How do you still strive for that when you are so far from that with these corrupt state-based, government-based systems that are running society? And again, that's what we're exploring throughout this season, and we'll get into that. But these first few episodes especially are definitely more theoretical, philosophical, theological, these types of things, a little more heady, so to say, versus practical. But we'll get into the practical, and this aspect is definitely necessary to set the stage for that. It'll go much better this way. So starting in the next episode, I will start talking about the natural order. And this is a concept that is probably one of my favorites that I've dove into recently, or relatively recently at least. And this is just the idea of looking at other philosophies, other worldviews, other historical examples, other religions, and how there are these patterns that exist within all of them. You see some similar trends over and over again. And the commonality among all of these is not necessarily each other. It is this natural order, the idea of a natural order. But the question is, what is this natural order? What does that mean? And what specifically is it? What are the specific principles of that order? And that's what I'm going to start getting into. So I'll talk about some of uh, the aspects of looking at maybe the Greeks and some of the Mesopotamian religions, things like that, comparing that to some of the uh, Christian ideas and the biblical principles. We'll get into the trivium, which I've talked about multiple times in this show before, especially season one. I hit on that many times, but I will relate that to these things and these concepts that we're going over about the natural order. So I'll talk about that. And then I'm going to get into the specific principles of the natural order. And this is something that I personally think is extremely cool, very helpful, very useful, and very applicable. And this is breaking down the natural order into specific categories and specific principles. So it's not just, oh, you need to be in tune with nature and, you know, this kind of thing. No. And it's it's not saying, oh, well, the Bible says X, Y, Z. No, it's actually getting down to the principles of the natural order of the universe, of all things. And that is something that will be explored near the end of this whole natural order section of this season. I don't know how many episodes this section will be. It might just be two, it might be four, who knows what. But that is where we are going in the next few episodes. I'll wrap up with a disclaimer that I probably don't have to give by now, because if you've made it all the way through last episode and this episode, then you probably don't care. But this is not a religious podcast per se. But given the nature of this comparison between the historical early church and modern times and modern movements, which are secular, that is kind of the point of what I'm doing here, I do have to get into theology. I do have to get into philosophy. I have to really lay out these fundamental beliefs because, as you can probably tell from the past two episodes, that is how we understand where they are coming from, why they make the decisions they make, and what their views would have been of their situation and how we can apply that to our situation. You've got to have this foundational stuff down. So these first few episodes, the beginning of season three, 
is going to be more of that nature. It will be more theological, religious, so to say. But again, this is not a religious podcast. I am not preaching. These aren't sermons. I am really laying out the foundations of this historical comparison and really diving into that aspect of it. And we'll get into the more practical, actionable aspects of it later in the season. So that's where we are. I would also like to say thank you for listening. Thank you for the reviews and the ratings that people have given. I don't know if there have been new ones fairly recently. I haven't looked in a while, so I guess I can look. I try to look every month, few months, something like that, or every once in a while. It catches my eye randomly if I've pulled it up for some reason. But thank you for those. Also, thank you to any new patrons. Uh, who do we have? Okay, so we do have one new patron on Subscribestar, and that would be Rick. So thank you very much, Rick, for being a sponsor of the show. I greatly appreciate that. Uh, Rick did have some questions about how to comment on episodes and how to kind of post that on that website. And Subscribestar is, I will say, not quite as user-friendly as Patreon. So there are ways of doing those things on there, but it is not ideal. But... Subscribestar doesn't have the same issues of censorship as Patreon, and they don't have that history. So, you know, you got to give up one for the other, and that's kind of just the way it is. I would also definitely encourage anybody who wants to support this content just as a whole, if you just want to support it because you think this is important stuff to be out there for free for everyone and you want me to continue doing this indefinitely, I would love to. And definitely, if I have support and people are financially supporting and paying for the things that I need to buy for the show for my research is the main expense right now. It's probably even more than hosting lately. And so in order to pay for the books or the audiobooks or whatever, I have an Audible subscription now that gets paid for by the patrons. And I definitely don't make any money for my time or anything like that. But I at least am able so far to pay for all of these expenses thanks to you guys, the subscribers, the patrons who are financially supporting the show. So thank you very much. I greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate that. I also strongly encourage people to send me feedback, send me questions, let me know what you are thinking, what you like, what you don't like, these kinds of things. Those are extremely helpful as well. Getting feedback is uh, just as important for me, just as helpful for me producing this podcast as getting the financial support from patrons. And so I would definitely encourage people that if you want to support the show, financially is a good option and through feedback is also an extremely good option. So if that's something you want to do, please do so. And I would definitely be very thankful for that. Also, if you would like to leave a rating or review, that's very helpful too. I'm still relatively low on numbers there. So that would be helpful for the podcast as well. Now, with that, I guess I'm out. Till next time. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.